Father God, we pray that as we have uh, offered our hearts to you in worship, uh, you would offer your spirit to us. I pray uh, that you would clothe us with power from on high this morning, and that, as the Scripture says, your Holy Spirit would remind us of what Jesus has taught us. We pray that you would quicken our spirits to your spirit and that we would move in your spirit in the week to come, that we would find your path beneath our feet, that we would find your work at our fingertips, uh, that we would know your guidance in our minds, your purpose in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Would you rather be promoted at your job? Or would you rather be excellent at your job? Promoted or excellent? How many say promoted? How many say excellent? How many say excellent but secretly desire being promoted? What's that? You like to be promoted because you're excellent. Oh, sure, but I mean, what are the chances of that? <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, of course, uh, you know, which is, you know, a good point. If we get, if we get promotion, we'd like to assume uh, it's because we're just really excellent at what we do. That fan, guys. Sorry. Uh, so changing the question just a little bit, if you are promised a promotion uh, at work, uh, if you have a job, if you're promised a promotion, would you then uh, relax and say, yeah, I got a promotion coming? Or would you try to be more excellent so as to be worthy of the coming promotion? Relax. Try to be more excellent so as to be worthy. Insecure thinking. I'd, I, you'd work harder for fear that they would take away the promotion if you didn't. Uh, one of the things I like least about uh, our current civic culture is uh, its obsession with uh, uh, it's a, its obsession with with rights. It's like you know we talk about who is owed what by whom, right? Uh, and, you know, that's, that can be a super, super important discussion. Uh, don't get me wrong, but if that's all we focus on, then it doesn't actually encourage excellence, does it? It encourages, you know, what is your intrinsic due because of who you are, you know? You have to treat me with respect because of who I am. Yeah, but if you're going to treat me with respect, I want to be worthy of it which means I want to do respectful things, right? And so I think individual health uh, often comes from behaving in such a way as to try to be worthy of what you've been given. Maybe not necessarily to earn what you've been given because, you know, it's nice when respect is a gift. Then again, if you get a gift like that, you want to be respectful, right? You want to be worthy. It's uh, the love of God, the grace of God, the generosity of God to us. Well, that's a gift. But when he gives us grace, when he gives us generosity, we do want to behave in a way that is worthy of it in order to sort of complete the circle and honor honor the principle of the thing. 
And we could talk more about that, but I'm just making a few observations like that because I think it's a good lens uh, to appreciate uh, today's uh, story in our sermon series on the life of David, uh, <clears throat> which comes mostly out of the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, well, I'm sorry, hand me my program, honey. We'll be reading out of 1 Samuel 18 this morning. Uh, you can find it uh, in your program um, or up on the big board. I'm going to be concentrating on uh, 1 Samuel 18, uh, 6 through 27, but just to kind of set up uh, the whole chapter, uh, this is the chapter that comes after the famous David versus Goliath story, right, which we went over last week. Um, and uh, epic story, everybody knows David and Goliath and how that went down. And then there's this aftermath and uh, picking it up at the beginning of chapter 18, not in your program. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as his self. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, and along with his tunic and his sword and his bowl and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. If you're trying to follow along with the story as I read it, you notice something about 1 Samuel 18. It's kind of a mushed-up remix. And what scholars think is that the book that we call 1 Samuel in Scripture is sort of a, it's a collection, it's a, it's a mix of a number of different chronicles of the time. As chroniclers were writing down all of these great stories about Samuel and about David, there were, there were a couple famous versions of them. And so when uh, it was all collected into the book that we call 1 Samuel in the Bible, they just kind of mushed together all of those different accounts. And so it reads a little disjointed. There's a comment about David, then there's a comment about Saul interacting with David. I mean, a comment about uh, David and Jonathan, and then Saul and David, and then we're back to David and Jonathan, and, and it's all sort of out of, dis, out of joint uh, on the timeline. I just mention that because if you try to read along in this story uh, in your own Bible, it will seem a little funky. I said this last week. We saw a little bit of it last week. First Samuel reads a little bit like a Tarantino flick. It's like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, when he tells a story, he'll often tell the story, and then he'll jump back in the timeline and tell the story a different way, and then he'll go to the end, and then he'll go back to the middle, and it's all, you know, supposed to be very cool and nihilistic and, you know, black leather. Um, First Samuel invented that, you know, a few thousand years before Quentin Tarantino uh, came along, although I think Quentin Tarantino would, would, uh, would probably be a, a good director for the Life of David movie because it's sort of disjointed. There's a lot of violence in it, you know. That's just me. <clears throat> I digress. Back to the Bible. So we're picking it up uh, in uh, verse 6. We're going to read verse 6 through 27, uh, which is a little bit long. But... Uh, stories uh, can be like that. So what has happened here is that instead of letting David go home to be with his family, Saul has kept David in, at headquarters. Uh, David has become a national hero in killing the giant, 
And so Saul's like, well, you're going to stay with me now. You're no longer going to go live as sort of a semi-homeless person taking care of sheep uh, in the pasture. Uh, you're, one of, you're one of my dudes now. You're part of my entourage. And David's like, well, okay, that sounds good. Uh, makes sense. David is talented, and David is very popular with the people after uh, slaying Goliath. Um, he strikes up a friendship with David and uh, with Jonathan. Jonathan really likes David. He likes what he saw from David on the battlefield. Stay tuned because we'll get more of David and Jonathan uh, later in the story. Uh, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, after he had killed Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. as like a victory parade with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Well, hmm, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. What do we know about Saul? Super insecure guy, right? Super insecure. And so if you're super insecure and you're like, Saul, yeah, you killed a thousand. David, 10,000. You the man, David. And and Saul's feeling a little queasy inside. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Interesting, uh, because as we know, God has anointed David to become king because Saul has disqualified himself through insecurity and dastardly deeds. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Saul is a great believer in that. The next day, I guess they're back in the palace, they're back at headquarters, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. More about that in a moment. He was prophesying in his house. Saul was prophesying. He was a man blessed by God. Uh, there's some stories about that we will get to eventually uh, in, in the narrative. Uh, but he's trying to have a spiritual time with God, even Saul and his insecurity. Uh, it's good to know. Uh, he was prophesying in the house while David was playing the lyre. David's playing his guitar as he usually did. We know that David was a musician because he wrote a whole bunch of psalms, and we have them in the Bible. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Good king, good king. So he's feeling a little insecure. David's sitting in the corner, kind of playing a little James Taylor. And, and Saul just picks up the spear and tries to kill him. Uh, that's one way uh, to solve uh, your insecurity issue. Just kill the guy who's causing it. Um, uh, and David eludes him. David, we know, is a very quick and agile fellow. And he eluded him not once, but twice, which begs the question... Why would David go back after the first time? So a few things to handle there. One, uh, an evil spirit uh, from God came forcefully on Saul. I don't know if that means that God is afflicting Saul with an evil spirit. Uh, we know that sometimes God sends opponents into the world. In the book of Job, we read how Satan asks God if he can go attack Job. And God says, yeah, sure. Uh, but I think Job's going to beat you. You know, the, the world is supposed to be conflictual. 
life is supposed to be hard, and the very fact that there are demons in the world suggests that God has kind of gone out of his way to make sure that we have opponents. Fighting is good for us. It it requires us to trust. It requires us to develop courage and all sorts of good things. Life is not for the faint-hearted or the cowardly, and anybody who tries to follow Jesus knows that. So it could be that. It could be that, that God's like, you know, Saul, you are a mess, little guy. Uh, I'm going to send you some antagonism. I'm going to let a demon attack you, um, and you're going to have to figure it out. I'm going to provoke you so that instead of wallowing in insecurity, you get your courage up. That could be what God is doing. Or it could be that the phrase, an evil spirit from God, is just a very, very old-fashioned, archaic, ancient way that the Israelites had to refer to demons. Demons don't get mentioned very often in the Old Testament, like virtually never. And so we're not really sure what phrases the ancient Israelites used. We, we just know that, you know, they, they knew that there were spiritual beings in the world that were not good. They knew that God created everything. So an evil spirit from God, a supernatural evil spirit, it might just be that. I don't know. Uh, but it's clear that Saul is afflicted, and evidently people kind of know it. He tries to, uh, tries to pin uh, David uh, to uh, the wall, and, and David eludes him not once but twice. Why does he go back for a second time? Um, Clearly, David has decided to interact with Saul in a manner governed by something other than Saul's behavior. Right? I mean, we can at least say that much. David is interacting with Saul based on, well, based on principle. If somebody throws a spear at me to kill me, I'm thinking probably time to to leave or fight back. He just killed a giant. He could probably take down a king. Um, but instead, just David decides to take it. You know, he's going to try and survive, but he's not going to try and, and escape or overcome in, in this instance. And I just think that's it's probably worth the sermon right there. I mean, Jesus would eventually teach, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Do good to the people who are trying to destroy you. That's not, it's not really a warm and fuzzy teaching. That's a teaching for warriors, man. I mean, that's, that's a teaching for people who have uh, no cowardice in them because it means that you're setting yourself up to get taken advantage of. It means that you're setting yourself up to go back to the scene of the crime and let them hurl the spear at you a second time. That is a heck of a way to live. That's That's what David does. How many of you would say it's healthy to let people take advantage of you? It's godly to let people take advantage of you. Now that's just un American. What about my rights? Uh, Food for thought, yeah? Food for thought. 
clearly David is acting on a different principle. And, and when we set up the, the sermon series on the life of David, we said all we knew about David, the only, the only thing we know about David when God anoints him to be king is, is, is what? What do we know about David? He's a man after God's own heart. That's all we're told about him. And then in the arc of the story, we have to figure out what it is about David's heart that God likes so much. Um, and uh, this week, I think we see the same sort of thing we saw in his battle with Goliath. David lives by principle. He has a code. He's a code of, of, of right and, and wrong. And, and here, he lives according to his code, not according to his treatment, not according to how Saul treats him. Um, and that's fairly good model for life. Do you interact with people according to how they treat you, or do you interact with people according to godly principle? See, those are two very different things, two very different things. And somehow David had figured that out by the time he was a teenager, which is what he is in these stories. Um, So there we go. David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Saul had figured this out. That guy's blessed. I'm not. I've offended God. Uh, David seems to have God's hand with him. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Again, it keeps saying that. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So the idea is that Saul keeps sending David out into super dangerous battles, and David keeps doing well. So Saul comes up with this idea. I'll tell you what, marry my daughter, and then not only will you be a commander, but you'll be part of the royal family, and there'll be a bigger target on your back because the Philistines will now know if they get you, they're wiping out the royal family. So that's the, that's the scheme, right? That's the trick. Um, But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to uh, Adriel of Mahola instead. Um, David responds humbly. Now this is very interesting because David has been told he's going to be king of Israel. And the fastest route to be king of Israel is to become the king's son, right? Because then you're in line for the throne. But David's like, no, I'm not taking any shortcuts. I'm not helping God out. I'm not getting promotion that way. And there's something about that that has to do with David's code, his principles as well. The story continues. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, and 
so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of Philistines may be against him. Same scheme, same plan. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you. He really likes you. That's why he's doing this. And his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. He replies the same way. No, we've been over this. I can't just marry into the king's family like that. I'm, I'm not ready. I'm just, I'm just a, a, a poor little guy. It's clear from the text that Saul thinks David has a problem. What does Saul thinks David what does Saul think David's problem is? I'm sorry? He thinks David doesn't have any money. David's poor. And so he won't accept such a royal gift, such a royal wedding. It's something like that. I think Saul has decided that David's problem is insecurity. David's insecure. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. In secret, I'm going to have all my guys go to David and say, no, 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 honestly, the king likes you. Look, everybody likes you, David, which is hilarious because the entire nation is singing songs to David's glory, right? David did not look particularly insecure when he took on Goliath, did he? So it's just a, it's a, it's a psychologically subtle narrative, really, even though the language is kind of archaic and, and, and stilted. Saul is projecting his problem onto David. If you are an insecure person, if you are scheming behind everybody's back, you just assume that that's how everybody else is too, right? Uh, And that's kind of what's going on. It's like unhealthy mind sees unhealthy things. Uh, Human nature, classic. Uh, But David's like, yeah, uh, again, I'm I'm not doing it that way. I'm not doing it that way. When the attendants, uh, so, uh, I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, all right, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Let's just take a moment of silence, pause and consider. Insert your jokes here. I want a hundred scalps uh, for uh, for my daughter. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Uh, so he's like, uh, tell him I want. Uh, he he's got such a weak self-image. I'll give him a chance to become a hero again. Go out there and and bring me a hundred Philistine scalps, a hundred Philistines foreskin. For do you guys know what that is? Because because I asked Antonio to prepare a slide. <laughs> Go ahead and put that up. I just, do, we not, do we not have that? <clears throat> I think Antonio consulted the board and they, <clears throat> they said no. Yeah, so you're going you're to go kill 100 Philistines, mutilate them, and bring me the proof. Uh, and then you can have, uh, then you can have my... My, uh, my daughter in, in marriage. 
When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. What? So before the allotted time elapsed, there was evidently a deadline. There was a foreskin deadline. David took his men with him, and, and I bet that was a jolly party, and went out and killed not 100, but 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins in what I hope was a hermetically sealed container. They counted out the full number to the king. Again, let's just pause. <clears throat> different time, different culture. It's like, one, two. Oh, goody. Good heavens. They counted out the full number to the king, uh, and it was double what he asked for. Yay! so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. Oh, a heartwarming story. A heartwarming story. What the heck, what the heck is going on here? And we have to kind of, kind of see through, uh, you know, the baggage here. I mean, this was warrior culture. This was kill or be killed. This was how, this was how they rolled uh, back then. Every, every, Every season, every, every warm season, the time for war, and these guys would fight, and there were deaths on, on both sides. And, and uh, you know, they would take trophies, you know, again, much like, you know, some of the, the Plains tribes in, in uh, the American mainland would take trophies. They would take scalps. These guys took symbols of manhood, shall we say, in order to like steal your manhood by killing you, it was vicious. It was barbarian. I mean, it was it was deeply, deeply vulgar. But that's how they that's how they did it. Um, <clears throat> so get past that and and just try to uh, read into the essence of of the story. Um, Saul tries to offer Merab, doesn't work. Saul offers David Michael again as a scheme, right, to put a target on on David's back, and David says no. Then Saul says, "You have to pay for her." with a great deed. And he says, yes. And then he goes out and does it. What's going on here? What changed for David? And we're trying to figure out what's in David's heart. And, and this is the mystery of the story. Uh, what, do you think, what do you think is going on here? Uh, why would David accept this deal in, in particular? He turned down Merib when she was offered freely, turned down Michael when she was offered freely, but then he accepts a chance to earn the gift of, of the daughter. Um, Saul's theory is that David's insecure, but I don't think that's true. I think David, again, has a code. I think this has to do with David's code of honor, and I think that's what makes his heart great. Merab was offered as a reward for slaying Goliath, essentially. And, and remember, David thought that fighting Goliath was just what any soldier should have done. I mean, you, you can't defy the armies of God, big guy. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to figure out how to do it. And he does it, and he wouldn't accept any reward for it. That was a point of honor for David. And points of honor for David are very, very important things. Uh, so uh, whenever, whenever you, there's an interview of a U.S. soldier who has done something brave in the course of battle uh, somewhere in the world, the soldier always says the same thing. Like, I was just doing my job. 
you know, which I love whenever I hear that. And that's kind of, that's kind of David's attitude toward Goliath. Look, I was, I was, just, I was just doing a job. You know, this, let's not make a big deal about this. Let's not, like, elevate me to royalty or anything. Uh, that's God's job. That's not why I did my job. The thing about bringing Saul 200 scalps, well, well that's different. Here's a chance to honor the kingship rightly. Because honor must have a price. Otherwise, it's worthless. Otherwise, it's cheap. And David will not have honor be cheap. He will not be honored cheaply. He will not be respected cheaply. That's not how it works with him. It's like he's saying, look, if I'm going to be king someday, and apparently I am, then I want to be an honorable and worthy man when I get there. I'm not going to be promoted for nothing. I'm not going to be promoted and have people say, well, he played politics in the court. You know, he snagged one of Saul's wives and, you know, played politics well enough to ascend the throne. Nobody's going to say that about me, David says. He's promised a promotion about God, by God, but he sets out to be worthy of it. You know, not, not to earn it in a way, because God has already told him that it's a dumb deal, done deal, but, but, to, but to be worthy of it, to honor what God has done in his life. You see the, the difference? Being an honorable person, he tries to honor God's choice to make him king. Are you following me? Code of honor. Price of honor. And I think that just tells you what you need to know about David's heart. He's, he's an honorable guy. That's kind, of, that's kind of a rare thing. I think it's a rare thing today. It was a rare thing back then. You know, what kind of guy lets the king throw spears at him twice and goes back for more? Well, evidently an honorable guy. I mean, there's no rule that said that David had to do that, just like there was no rule that said that David had to fight Goliath. Just that there's no rule that said that David had to go kill 200 Philistines to be worthy of a royal bride. You know, this isn't about commandments. This is about principle. And really, that's what God wants in any heart, I think. Sometimes it's expressed weirdly. I mean, you know, 200 foreskin scalps. Sure, I mean, it's, 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 that's a bit whacked, right? But I don't know. It was his culture. It was how they did things. And God's able to see through uh, the grisliness and find a point of honor uh, in there somewhere. Here's what David could have done, just to be clear. He could have married Merab, the first daughter, and then killed Saul in self-defense. I mean, geez, if anybody, if anybody was uh, in his rights to kill Saul, it would be the it would be the guy whom Saul tried to murder a couple times. And if you know the story, you know that Saul continues to try and murder him for years after this. This goes on for a, a good 15 years or so. Or uh, David could have said, yes, give me your daughter. And then after marrying into the royal family, David could have told everyone that God had anointed him as king. Instead, he kept that secret. You know, he was more popular than Saul already, it's possible that David could have conducted a bloodless coup. Just 
made a popularity run once he had become a royal, uh, but he doesn't do that. Uh, David has a son uh, who tries to do it to him later, but David would not do it to Saul. Instead, David goes way out of his way to honor the kingship. It is no small thing that I should be the king's son-in-law. I want it known that the kingship should be treated honorably. Perhaps David's thinking, and then when I become king, everybody will treat me honorably. He's sowing honor uh, so that he reaps honor later, perhaps. How do you apply a story like this? Okay, a couple application points, maybe three. Application number one, live according to your code, not according to how people treat you. Um, Jesus says the same thing in different ways, of course. You know, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. Um, Even non-righteous people love people who treat them well. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing special about honoring your friends. But honoring people who treat you like garbage, ah, that's unique. That's different. And when Jesus gives that teaching, he says, make your love perfect as your Father's love is perfect. And in Jesus' mind, this is perfect love. This is completion. This is principled. God's always looking for the honoring of the, of the principle. Love is love. Your goal in life is to be loving. And a loving person loves whoever is in front of them as much as they can. It doesn't matter who that person is because that's how God does it, right? It doesn't matter how people treat God. God loves them anyway. God loves them anyway. It doesn't matter how people treat you. You love because you're loving, period. That's it. That's how we should live life. We shouldn't insist on our rights. I have loved you, therefore you must love me. Well, you've just short-circuited the whole process. And that's a hard one. That's a hard one for humans. So live according to your, to your code, according to the love principle, not according to how people treat you. And that goes for when people treat you badly. And I think it goes for when people treat you really good as well. You know, somebody could flatter you. Somebody could promote you. Love them anyway. <laughs> right? Don't give them any false respect. Don't try to honor them because they have honored you. Honor them on principle. Don't be manipulated because people treat you well. You behave the same toward everyone always. And that's gospel teaching. Jesus talked about that a lot, right? Application number two, I would say, uh, I would say it this way, pursue excellence, not recognition. Uh, one of my personal proverbs, if you're a Blue Water veteran, you know that when I learn something, I always try to distill it into a, a one-sentence proverb so that I remember it, otherwise I forget. Uh, so one of my personal proverbs is, people who pursue power without pursuing excellence are dangerous people. I think that should be written over the doorway of the national capital. Um, if you pursue power without pursuing excellence... It's not going to go well for the people over whom you have power. And that breaks down all the way to 
local kind level. Um, if you're going to be promoted, you want to be the sort of person worth promoting, right? Uh, if you're going to have influence or power over people, uh, you want to be a godly person when that happens. Because if you're not a godly person when that happens, you'll just reproduce ungodliness and that will totally suck for you and, and everyone else. Jesus put it this way, he who wants to be greatest of all must be servant of all. If, if, you're, if you want to be great, then you've got to be really, really good at, at, at being everyone's servant. If God puts you over people, if he gives you a sphere of influence, then you better be willing to use it for love. Hopefully, if I ever become great, I'll bless everyone I lead or influence. Um, there's a corollary to this, I think. If I am a secure person, it's because I have done lots of good things in secret, stuff that no one knows about. I'd say that's a, a corollary um, because um, if you do things without the desire to have them recognized, you end up doing them a lot in ways that don't get recognized, and that's got to be okay. Jesus talks a lot about that too, right? Don't let your right hand, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's like do good things in secret. And then if you get promoted, you'll know who you are really because you'll have a history to back it up, right? David knew who he was. Saul was worried about what, who people thought he was. David knew who he was. Saul was always worried about who people thought he was. Security comes from not caring what people think and doing the right thing no matter what. Simple that. And application number three, find a way to do things on principle. It's like a workout for your heart. Find a way to do things on principle. It's like a workout for your heart. Um, I'll just end on that point. I was reading uh, the life story of David uh, back when I was uh, 23, 24 years old and preparing to, uh, to pop the question uh, to a certain uh, frisky Chinese girl I knew uh, from our university days. Uh, and, and this story in particular uh, st struck me. Um, because I felt like marriage was a, a promotion in life. Um, it's certainly a, certainly a life change. Uh, and I, I remember talking about this with a, with a couple guys that I was living with at the time. It's, it's going to be a long story. You know. okay. And we sort of arrived on the point we were talking about our relationships and stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I can't. I mean, I, I love Sonia. She loves me. Um, you know, we're going to get married. I have no doubt about that. But, but maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I should earn her in some fashion. Like, you know, maybe, maybe there's some way in which I should sow into this process uh, that would kind of, I don't know, release godliness or something. And, and like, I was 23 years old at the moment of that conversation. So you could imagine, like, all the false insights that we were sharing and stuff like that at the time. It's like... Yeah, so what would be the present-day example of, uh, you know, collecting 200 Philistine foreskins for your bride, you know? Oh, deep, dude. You know, that, 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 was, 
it was not a high-level conversation. You know, we were struggling with this. Um, but uh, I, uh, I remember thinking hard about it. I think, well, you know, what, what, what changes when you get married? Well, I mean, suddenly you get like a, this sexual life that you never had before, right? And, and that kind of feels like a promotion, particularly if you're a guy. I won't comment further on that. Um, but it's like, what, what can I do there? Well, anyway, what, long, long story short, what I decided to do was, well, part of, of me getting married is not like just getting this new part of my life. Part is, is um, being worthy of this new part of my life. Um, so I was, uh, I was a really uh, skinny guy back then, as unfortunately I am now as well. So I decided that I was going to work hard to present my body in an honorable way to my wife. Okay, you're allowed to laugh a little bit. So I had this job at, don't cover your face. This is about me honoring you. It's not as embarrassing as the 200 foreskins. I had a job at a big software company and I had a gym. This is what I did. I took like four or five months, six months, and I just went to the gym every day on my lunch hour and I worked out like crazy. And I gained like 18 pounds of solid muscle. I was ripped. Oh yeah, I was sexy. I was that. I was all that and more. I was a picture of virility. Right? Right, honey? What I'm struggling to say is, you can find practical applications to the story, right? And, and that was the best I could come up with when I was, you know, I was 24 years old. By the time uh, we got married, I was just a kid. But it's like, if you're going to get promoted, find a way to be worthy of it. And I think, you know, that was, I think that was healthy for me. You know, I think that was a way um, of me sowing a little unselfishness and honor uh, into uh, what I really didn't want to get for free. Do you know what I'm saying by that? I, I really didn't just want to get it for free because if I did, it seemed too cheap. Do you get it? I mean, all the great things in life are free. They're given to us freely. Love and grace. I mean, it's all, it's all free, but it shouldn't be cheap. It's a great line from a German uh, minister and theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, you know, grace is free, but it's not cheap. You can't treat it cheaply. And if you do, you end up kind of not valuing it, and, 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 and really good stuff gets twisted somehow. You know what I'm saying? Don't live cheaply. Live free, but not cheaply. And there's something in that that separates the men from the boys. Pardon the sexist analogy. You know, there's something in that that separates... royalty from kingship, if that makes any sense. There's something in that that separates um, a good heart from a heart after God's own heart. God loved us immensely, generously, copiously, 
but he still found a way to make it sacrificial. He wouldn't let it be cheap, so he came and died on the cross. You know, he just he wouldn't let it be cheap. So I encourage you to find ways to do things on principle for that reason. If you sow stuff like that into your marriage, I, 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 told, I think that's a good thing I did for my marriage. I suck at almost all of the other things in marriage. Um, so uh, I, have to, I have to find good things to do um, on occasion. Um, maybe you're like me. Maybe it would benefit you to think about core relationships like your marriage or your relationship with your children or your relationship with your family of origin if, if you are unmarried and don't have kids. You know, find ways to do things on principle. And then it means that relationships that you might just let lie there, that you might assume will always be around. If you do things on principle, you will occasionally do things that keep the relationships from becoming cheap. And then glorious things will happen. Glorious things will happen. Is that clear? It's a little bit slippery, right? But I think that's what God really digs about hearts. Hearts that love good things, but won't take them cheaply. Hearts that don't require commandments, but instead do things on principle. Hearts that are mature and and grown up. All right, let's pray. Uh, We all want good things, Lord. We all want promotion in life. We all want relational promotion. We all want uh, financial promotion. We want ministry promotion. We want more influence and recognition in life. We want to be great. We want to be great. Um, We don't want to achieve it cheaply, God. We want to be real when we get there. Uh, we want to be excellent and, uh, and not just influential. We want to be men and women after your heart, God. Uh, I pray uh, for a season of, of growing up for us. Uh, that you would uh, school us in, in the heart of David and really anchor us in maturity. Uh, for all the years that that we have left. In Jesus' name.